This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble Union Square, please give a warm welcome to David Gran and Miwa Messer. And just a reminder, we are taping live for the Port Over podcast. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over. David Grand, obviously, is the best-selling author of, among other books, The Lost City of Z and Killers of the Flower Moon, which we all know Scorsese has turned into a three-hour and 26-minute movie that apparently is coming to con next month, so we'll see what happens. But more importantly, we're here to talk about The Wager, which shipwrecks, mutiny, very bad things. And I want to give us a little bit of context before we start talking about this book. So Robinson Crusoe pubs in 1719, Moby Dick pubs in 1851, Lord Byron. Yeah, you really are wondering why I'm bringing up Lord Byron, but there's a reason I'm bringing up Lord Byron. Lord Byron publishes the first two cantos of Don Juan, which was his, you know, scandalous, scandalous poem, in 1812. Lord Byron is born in 1788. Lord Byron's grandfather is one of the main characters in The Wager, and I was not expecting that. If you read David, you know that he finds these stories, right, tucked away in the corners of history, right? This is the fun thing about following David, whether it's in The New Yorker or in the books. He always finds the unexpected, and then he turns it into something you cannot put down. So I am gonna ask you how The Wager started. Yeah, so uh, the wager started um, when I was looking to one of my pet obsessions, which is mutiny. You know, I think just from a kid reading about mutinies and watching films, I've always been intrigued by them. You know, what is it about a military organization that is supposed to be an instrument of order? What causes some of the people to suddenly disorder? Are they these extreme outlaws or is there something rotten? at the core of the system that justifies the rebellion. So in any case, I was poking around in mutiny, thinking, well, maybe there could be a book idea somewhere in there. And I eventually came across an 18th century journal written by John Byron, who had been the 16-year-old midshipman on the wager uh, when the voyage set sail. And of course, he would later go on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, this account that Byron himself had written influenced his grandson, who referred to it uh, in Don June as my granddad's narrative. And this old journal at first seemed kind of stilted and was written in this archaic old English. But as I read more, I kept pausing over these arresting phrases. There were words like the perfect hurricane, John Byron used. There were words like scurvy, and teeth falling out. There were words like shipwreck, violence on the island, this kind of real life Lord of the Flies, and shipwreck, and mutiny, and murder. And so I realized that this um, little, strange little book, I thought, had at least the seed. At that point, it was just a seed mm -hmm. of what I thought could be an interesting book. Okay, so I'm going to add to that for a second. Britain's going to war with Spain. Able-bodied seamen are being kidnapped off the streets of London and other cities in Britain because the Navy doesn't have enough people. 
They're being taken out of care homes on stretchers and put onto boats. This does not seem like a great idea. And you open the book with the, possibly one of the best lines ever. The only impartial witness was the sun. Yeah, well, the seeds of this expedition for its destruction could be traced back to its very origins in England when this squadron, which is being sent on this secret mission and the wagership is part of it, to try to capture the Spanish galleon filled with treasure, which was known as the prize of all the ocean. But as you say, they were woefully short of men. They sent out these press gangs just to round people up and just basically drag them onto these ships and sent unwillingly on a voyage that may last as long as three years. And they were so short of men, as you said, that they actually went to a retirement home and they took these soldiers who were in their 60s and 70s. Many of them were missing an assortment of limbs and some were so sick they had to be lifted onto their stretcher. Uh, and everybody knew they were sailing uh, to their death. So the idea of building a band of brothers on one of these ships based on all these recalcitrant seamen was gonna be an enormous challenge. As for the opening line, this is a story not just, and what really drew me to the story, mm -hmm. was not just that it is this gripping saga of survival, this kind of crazy sea yarn, but that it is also really a war over the truth, and I'm sure we will get into oh, that. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> yes, and so that's why that opening line about the only impartial witness was the sun. Okay, so you spent two years in an archive. Like, yes. you've always been very clear that everything starts for you in an archive. You start with the paperwork, essentially. Yes. You like to be a detective with paperwork. I like to be in a place that suits me which is basically in the safe confines of an archive. <laughs> okay, but the safe confines of an archive, the way you operate, sounds like code breaking to me. Well, a lot of these old texts do involve a, a, an element of detection, especially when you are a generalist like me. I think if you're a naval historian who has spent you know, 40 years and did their PhD reading these documents, it's you know, the, a, a familiar language, but for somebody like mm -hmm. me, it is, and I'll just give you one example. So mm -hmm. there is this surprising trove of primary materials that survived, and God knows how they survived these typhoons and tidal waves swamping the ships, and some of them survived shipwreck. But you can go to England, you can pull them out of the archives in these boxes. They come out, they are from the 1740s, they are water stained, they are crumbling. Dust just rises out of them when you open these boxes. One of the documents that are zero, the muster books, the muster books from these various mm -hmm. ships. And when I first started reading a muster book, it just looked like gibberish to me. Mm -hmm. It basically was just the name of a seaman or an officer. When they entered the ship, it listed their rank and the date they entered, but it had one other columns with these abbreviations. One letter was R. I was like, what does R mean? I saw R next to a lot of early names. Wow, after a while and studying these documents and consulting with experts, they're like, oh, that means they ran. They tried to desert. And then another abbreviation was even more striking in these muster books. It was the letters DD. I was like, what does DD mean? DD. And when you started to look down the pages from the muster books of all the different ships in the expedition, you just kept seeing DD, 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 skip a few, DD, DD. And I'm like, on every page, you're like, what? DD, it turns out, means discharge dead. And so you could actually study these documents and start to create tallies, and they give you a sense of the horrific toll of this voyage. And I realized only after a while that these documents can really speak volumes, mm -hmm. but it really does take a little while to figure out what the hell is going on. Okay, so in typical David Grand fashion, 
which this many books in, I can say that. This many pieces in for The New Yorker, I can say that. But here you are, you found the details that you're looking for. You have done the research slash journalism slash, you've got the history in place. There's a little bit of true crime, obviously we're dealing with mutiny and other assorted terrible things, right? So there's a little bit of true crime happening. So we've got all of the hallmarks of a piece by David Graham. But how do you structure this in a way that keeps the average reader, not everyone grew up on a sailboat, pal. Like you and I, you know, we understand the ocean a little more maybe than some, but you have got to keep the momentum going in the story. You have to figure out who's worth using as a linchpin for the story. You've got three characters that you're basically focused on. Yes. Obviously we are spoiler free in this conversation because the book's on sale today. So I'm not going to deny you the pleasure of reading this book. (laughs) But how do you structure, how do you take all of that data, all of that research, all of those words, all of those notes from people who have been dead for hundreds, you know, decades, how do you turn that into a story? Yeah. So, well, in this case, the challenge was in part because when several of the castaways uh, do miraculously make it back to England and they are summoned to face a court martial, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Many people here will know the line from Joan Didion that we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in their case, it's quite literally true. If they don't tell a convincing tale, they're going to get hanged and they could die. So several of them begin to offer their stories and testimony. And this generates this kind of competing war over the truth. Mm -hmm. So it's almost impossible to be an omniscient narrator in this case. We're never omniscient narrators anyways when Mm -hmm. we're looking back on time. So... I decided to structure around these three figures on the wager, all of whom are very different. There is the captain, uh, David Sheep, who was somebody who back in Scotland was like chased by debtors and always kind of embittered and frustrated, and yet on a ship usually found refuge. And on this expedition, he finally obtains what he had always longed for, which was a chance to captain his own warship. And then the other perspective is told from John Bulkley, who was the gunner on the wager, who was in many ways the most uh, skilled seaman on board the ship, and who was um, also an instinctive leader. Yet because he didn't come from the aristocracy, he really didn't have any chance that he could ever become captain of a warship at that time in that class structure. Um, And then the third perspective is from John Byron. So partly you choose them because they left behind materials that you can draw from. You can really represent their perspective. And the structure, by alternating between each one, even though their points of view are warring, you get closer to the truth. And I think you also learn something essential, which is one of the themes of the book, which is that we all shape our stories in some way. We all try to emerge as the hero of them. In their case, the stakes could be even higher. Mm -hmm. But they are all shaping their story. And so you get closer to the truth only by alternating these narratives. And the way you build suspense is actually pretty easy. You just tell the story the way it unfolded from their perspective because when they set off, they have no idea what's going to happen even the next day or the next hour. They set off with grand expectations and illusions and hopes and delusions, and then they begin to encounter these horrors. And often each day, they don't know if they're going to live or die, whether they're on the island, if they're ever going to get off the island. So their lives are fraught with tension. They are fraught with suspense. And so if you just let the story unfold the way it really Mm -hmm. happens, 
which to me is the way you get closer to the truth, to not tell history with always the arrogant hindsight of a historian or detective who already knows all the answers. You tell a story from the perspective of the people who have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And therefore, there is an inherent mystery, as there is to all our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the way you kind of do it. And I'll just give you one example of the competing narratives that just gives you some sense of this without giving too much away. On the island, they descend into this Lord of the Flies. And in one of the accounts, uh, somebody says, I was forced to proceed to extremities. You're like, oh, forced to proceed to extremities? Huh? What does that mean? And then you read the other account, and you say, oh, he shot him right in the head. And it's only by seeing the, the, this kind of interplay between the texts that you get to see, you get insights into each person, what they're leaving out, why they're leaving out, and then slowly you're getting unspooled. But I do ultimately leave it to you all to provide history's judgment. There's also, you know, you talk about this being Lord of the Flies on Wager Island, right? And there are a couple of moments in the book, too, where you're talking about how they essentially create a little village, right? There are all these little different huts and everyone's... But they're trying to preserve this sense of order and this sense of class and structure. They, I mean, one of the ways you describe it is that on the ship, you are dependent on other people doing their jobs properly. And so these guys are really reluctant to let go of the systems that they have been raised in because it's the only thing they know. And yet here they are on this island going, okay, there are no animals. There's really no food except for celery. And I'm also expecting, and this may be because I read Alive at too young an age, but I was expecting a little more cannibalism. I was a little surprised there wasn't more cannibalism. Yes. And there may have been more, to uh, be yeah. honest. They might not have wanted to go into it. They did not dwell on it. It was a taboo. I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing they didn't because there was a lot of superstition, too. At one point, yeah. there's a group that sort of kind of gets off the island briefly, and um, they're having such a rough go of it on the water that they decide, because they have not buried a dead colleague, they have to go back. Yeah, I think they and bury this body because they're like, well, this is why we're having a terrible time. So this combination of sort of structure and superstition and everything else, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. Well, the, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time in, in the opening two chapters unfolding these floating civilizations and what mm -hmm. the wooden world of a ship was like, how these ships were built how they were very regimented, how each person has a very designated spot. They were very hierarchical, um, and how they kind of function as this organization with their own lingo. One of the things, you know, I don't know what insights you will gain from the book, but you will gain at least, well, you'll gain two. You'll learn that certain words that you use actually derive from the mm -hmm. age of sail. You will learn, for example, that a scuttlebutt was a barrel on the ship where they would fill it with water and the seamen would gather around to get their water rations and they would gossip. Uh, piping hot was the bosun's whistle for a hot meal. Pipe down was his whistle to get quiet at night. Uh, my favorite phrase, which came a little bit later, was to turn a blind eye, which was from when Horatio Nelson wanted to ignore his uh, superior signal flag to retreat. He he put his telescope up to his blind eye. So that's why we use the phrase to turn a blind eye. The only other thing you'll leave, and I won't explain fully why, is that if ever you go to sea, bring limes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we are going to go there for a second because I'm sorry. Life on board ship was gross. Yeah, life That is the nicest way I can describe it. Well, especially it in those conditions. Gross. It was tough in those, it was tough in those conditions. Life on land could be pretty darn hard in that age, too, for a lot of these people. In fact, 
some of the poor actually found meals more plentiful on the ship. Mm -hmm. The one thing the Admiralty knew was that if you didn't feed the, the, the men, that you kind of would provoke them in their most tenderest point. So they were fed pretty well. But yes, conditions were very tough. And on this expedition, they were extraordinarily tough because mm -hmm. Because of the nature of the uh, expedition, these ships were packed with m more men than the ships were designed for. The wager mm -hmm. had about 250 men and boys, some as young as six, some in their 80s, all packed together. The seamen would sleep on hammocks with only about a foot separating them of space. And if the ship rocked, they would have to jostle each other. And then, of course, they end up suffering from every disaster that could possibly happen even before the shipwreck. I'm sorry, the amount of pus alone. <laughs> I, I really, I, a lot of you'll rats. make it through those pages. I promise you will make it through those pages. It is worth it. The payoff yeah. is there, but yeah. wow. And yet the structure and the hierarchies and the behaviors kept them all sort of sane under the circumstances. They clung to this. This, they, was, this was how they got through the worst things ever. Yeah, so the first part of the book is building that civilization, mm -hmm. this floating civilization, and explaining how it worked. And then at a certain point, it is how does that, what happens when that floating civilization disintegrates literally as the mm -hmm. ship cracks on the rocks, but also even in a more profound sense of customs and mores and order they find themselves, as the gunner John Buckley says, in a state of nature. You know, we've had a couple of questions from folks, both when they were registering on Eventbrite and here tonight, just Patrick O'Brien. In 59, he wrote a book, which, hold on, I have the title here, uh, The Unknown Shore, which is essentially based on part of the story of the wager, which you have here. But were you reading Patrick O'Brien as you were prepping for this? I know you've read a crazy amount. Yes, for this, I, I, you know, whenever I work on a work of history, I tend to read fiction more yep. for pleasure, anyways. Yeah. Um, and when I work on a book, I end up having to do so much research, so many mm -hmm. documents, and so I always seek out fiction that might help just kind of bring the life to world more. Mm -hmm. Partly as an escape, but also just to make me kind of live with it in that world. So right. I read a lot of Patrick O'Brien. Mm -hmm. I read, you know, Melville, who. Yep. You know, I had read Melville when I was young, and, you know, they really shouldn't make you read it when you're young. Moby Dick, I, I was just awestruck by Moby Dick. It is the strangest, most bewildering, most brilliant novel I think I've ever read. Certainly American. It's novel. actually trippy and best reserved. For, yes. Like, a, I read it young, and then I went back as an adult, and it's much better yeah, later. It's yeah. just, and it's really trippy. Yeah. So if you haven't ever made it through Moby Dick, it's totally worth it. Also, In the Heart of the Sea. In the Heart of the Sea, agree. I'm very fond of that book. Yes. And actually, I have to say, your John Byron made me think of Thomas Nickerson, who was roughly the same age. You know, I, I don't know how many of you have read it, but, you know, he's on the Essex as it goes out from Nantucket. And, of course, this is the, the book that inspires Moby Dick. But like Byron, he had written sort of his take on it, and Melville used that to create Moby Dick. What's, and, in, what's interesting mm -hmm. in the book, too, is it's really, um, you know, it's this yarn, but it's also... It's a meditation on truth, but it's also a real exploration of storytelling and the way yep. we tell stories. And what's so interesting, not only do th these people end up telling their stories and shaping their stories, but they are also shaped by the stories they have heard and told, mm -hmm. either by the forecastle men, the seasoned seamen on board a ship, but also by the sea tales they went. Byron in particular, John Byron, who was 16, you know, he loved adventure tales. He even brought some in his sea chest with him on this voyage. He had read Robinson Crusoe. So mm -hmm. he thought he was going to live a romance of the sea. That was his illusion when he went. He thought he was going to live his own kind of adventure tale. Of course, it didn't quite go that way. And what's amazing is when they're coming around Cape Horn, 
you see this interplay between how stories radiate out and take different forms. So Robinson Crusoe, the novel, is inspired by an actual real incident mm -hmm. of a British castaway who was left on this island. And then he was rescued, I can't remember now how long after, about a year or so after he had lived on this island. And his account was recorded by the captain who, who rescued him in his logbook. And so that ends up inspiring um, uh, uh, Defoe. But what's so interesting is when they're coming around Cape Horn and they're suffering from scurvy and they're battling this perfect hurricane, what are they dreaming of? What are they thinking about? Right. They want to get to the island of Robinson Crusoe. Mm -hmm. They think if they can just get to that island of Robinson Crusoe, which was a real place, um, they'll be okay. They can survive the way they did in the tale. Of course, what they will discover when they become wrecked on the island, there was one essential difference between the fictional account of Robinson Crusoe, which is he was alone, unlike these castaways of the wager. Um, they have to deal with the most unpredictable creature in all of nature, which is desperate humans. They mm -hmm. were not alone. So they have to deal with their own shipments. And they never let go of this idea. You know, sailors, especially in the British Navy, always, you know, there's all this talk of being gentlemen and the honor of being a sailor and all this. Oh, yeah, they don't live up to those standards. And obviously, they're trying to stay alive. I'm, I'm really yes. not entirely making fun of how they presented themselves to the world because, I mean, they just wouldn't let go. And you tell some wild, wild stories, including the fact that some of these guys couldn't swim. You can't swim, you. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah that how was are you in the Navy and you can't swim? You know, it's funny. In that day, I, I, again, it surprised me. Most seamen could not swim. And so you can imagine the sense of desperation, both when they're fortress, they're, these boats were both these lethal machines, but they were also their homes. And so you could only imagine what it was like. And they didn't carry lots of lifeboats. I mean, they carried a couple of small transport mm -hmm. boats, most of which would get shattered in the wreck. And so they have to, you know, some of them use one of them to ferry ashore. But they can't swim. The water's also very cold. Um, and even when they're on one of the castaway voyages, you know, they often can't really even get to the land or the islands because they can't swim. They're too afraid to anchor mm -hmm. by the rocks, so they can't get provisions. So here they are starving, and they face this challenge. They're still keeping their log books. And in Bulkley's case, he's keeping a more detailed log book than most. Yeah. Yeah, and again, this goes back to the point you were making earlier where he's trying to control his narrative. He's yes. trying to make sure that he gets heard, and it's partially because he thinks he's doing the right thing, and certainly the captain thinks he's doing the right thing, and even our little buddy John Byron thinks he's doing the right thing. All of these guys are very well-intentioned. Yes, yes. These are not reductive heroes or villains. They are all really deeply human. They are much more like ourselves, I hope. We are flawed, and these people are all fallible. And one moment, you know, you'll just admire these extraordinary acts of heroism and sacrifice and gallantry. And then a little bit later, you will just recoil at some shocking act of brutality. And as John Buckley ponders, is it a sin to want to live? Mm -hmm. It's hard to judge because I think when you read this book, you understand each of them and you end up asking a question. I ask myself the question at least, you know, who would I have been on that island? 
What would I have done in those circumstances? Who would I have followed? You like to think you would have been one way, but would you? And I think that is a, a deep question about our very nature. As a reader, that's something I look for. Whether I'm reading history or just a really great novel, I want the thing that connects to where I am in the world. It doesn't have to be of this. I mean, we're talking about guys in the 1740s. I mean, this story wraps up in 1746. So America is still a British colony. You know, the French-Indian Wars have started. Like, yeah, Lord Jim wasn't even published yet. Um, Darwin's On the Origin of Species wasn't published yet. The Jungle Book hadn't been published. All of these things. I mean, this is really early yeah, it's really in world history. And yet it feels like this all could be happening right now. Yeah. Well, the costumes change. Mm -hmm. um, the way people might speak and their accents may change. But human nature is human nature. And uh, I don't think that really changes that much. And that island really becomes a laboratory mm -hmm. that will test the human condition under, every, under very extreme circumstances. And inevitably, slowly, it begins to peel it back. And you will like some of the things you see, and you will not like mm -hmm. some of the things you see as how these shipmates. And so somebody like John Byron, who set sail when he's 16 with all this sense of romance, he has to come of age amid not only the horrors of these elements, uh, the natural elements, mm. but also the horrors unleashed by his shipmates and his, and his friends. And chaos could kill you. And I have lots of notes throughout my galley. I destroy galleys. Chaos could be deadly for these guys. If they couldn't figure out how to feed themselves, if they couldn't make their supplies last, they had managed to pull supplies off of the wager. But how do you keep things from going bad? How do you keep food from spoiling? All of these things where... If there's chaos, you are going to die. Yeah, and, and it leads to these really interesting debates. So the mm -hmm. captain sheep, you know, finally got his crown. He finally gets appointed captain of his warship. He gets to the island, and he says, I am still your captain. Why wouldn't I not be your commander? I was appointed by the commodore. I am rightfully your leader. Others start to have these philosophical debates saying, well, we're on land. He wants to govern by the same kind of regimented rules and hierarchy that had existed on the ship. Others are wondering, well, do those rules still apply here? Mm -hmm. Do we need new rules to survive? What makes a leader? Is it because of a title or is it something you should, you know, you earn in, in, in these conditions? And so even while they are starving on the island, they have these philosophical debates about leadership, duty, loyalty, and patriotism, and ultimately the great taboo, mutiny. So there's an indigenous community, Kaweskar, am I saying that correctly? I'm always bad, the accent is on the middle, but middle, I know where okay. the accent is, but I still have trouble saying it right, but it's Kaweskar. Kaweskar, okay, yeah, sorry. Kaweskar. So, their native population, they've been in Tierra del Fuego and Patagonia for thousands of years. They do show up at a very opportune moment and, and help keep our guys on Wager Island alive. And one of the things you just sort of drop in in your David Grand way is NASA years later went back to study this population because they were like, how do they survive in this extreme cold? And I just love that, that you drop that in there. Yeah. But I want to go back to them for a second, because this community really did keep our guys alive. I really, they would not have survived without Yeah, them. so the Carasquare are really, they were a, a native Patagonian group. They had, uh, like other um, native Patagonians, had lived along uh, Patagonia for 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And over that time, they had really adapted to these very harsh um, geographical circumstances. Mm -hmm. They learned to keep warm um, by always keeping a fire going, even in their canoes. I just thought they were struck. They, even in these little, even in their canoes, I mean, the wind and the storms, they always kept a fire going. And most important, they knew how to find food. They um, realized that trying to trek across this land was so difficult, it was hard to find animals along the long coast, Chilean coast of Patagonia. So they lived mostly in their canoes, and they just mm -hmm. traveled hundreds of miles along the coastline, and they knew where to find marine resources. They knew where to find fish, where to find sea urchins, and so they knew how to survive. And so when they show up at the island, they suddenly offer the castaways a lifeline. Mm -hmm. They go out and they bring them food. But this is also a story about imperialism mm -hmm. um, and the systematic prejudices that are embedded in that system. And so some of the castaways who, uh, in their accounts, will refer to these indigenous people as savages, mistreat them. And at a certain point, the Carrasco are, are, are looking at these castaways watching the violence spiral out of control. And at a certain point, they're just like, you know what? And they just disappear. They just, you know, this is one of those instances where imperialism and those attitudes not only, you know, can lead to the destruction of indigenous people, but in this case, it also helped fuel the destruction of the castaways, the imperialists themselves, because they lost their lifeline. And after that, they begin to descend um, much further into a state of Hobbesian depravity. And you've been to Wager Island. Yes, not one of the smarter things I've done. Yeah, okay. So we need to talk about this 52-foot <laughs> boat yes. that you took. Yes. Because that's not big enough to be on the open ocean. Yeah, I will say in my defense, <laughs> <laughs> I had a fixer from uh, Columbia was helping me. How, do I, how can I arrange an expedition on my own to try to get the Wager Island? It's not a place where you can find a cruise ship to go. You know, we got sent this photograph of the boat, and it looked really good. I was like, it looked big. It looked, you know, roomy and comfortable. And then after, you know, it took me about four days to get to the island where we were going to depart from, which was Chiloé Island, which is off the coast of Chile, Patagonia, which is about 350 miles north of where Wager Island is located in a gulf or a bay that is known as the Gulf of Sorrows, or some prefer to call it the Gulf mm -hmm. of Pain, which should have told me right then, stay the hell away. Dude. <laughs> so, but when I got there and I saw the boat, I was like, God, that's not really very big. It was this, it was this, it was really meant to go in the channels of Patagonia, and it was very top heavy, and it was heated by a wood stove. We would stop along the channels to chop wood, uh, to stay warm, it was winter, so it was about 30 degrees out. It was raining or sleeting. And we would also get our water from the glacial streams coming down. And so we would pull up along these little islands, and they would run a, like a hose, but a little bit wider, up to these streams. And then they would run the water down to fill, the, fill our boat up with water so we would have uh, liquid to drink. And so, you know, in the beginning, it seemed pretty good, though. I was like... <laughs> We were in these channels that are very well sheltered from the islands. And so they're really chillingly beautiful. They were desolate. We didn't see another soul for days. Um, it's barren. Uh, the trees are all bent from the wind. They're all on 45 degree angles. They look as if they're lying on top of each other or like hurtling sprinters. But it was beautiful. And I was like, I got this. No problem. Wager Island, here I come. 
And then there came a certain point where the captain said, uh, you know, now we're going to have to go out into the actual ocean, open ocean, if we're going to get to Wager Island. And that's when I first got my glimpse of these seas. And just let's say it was like, kind of like being in a ping pong ball, like if you were in the ball and you were just getting bounced around. I just sat on the floor uh, for about eight, ten hours a day. Um, you couldn't stand because if you stood, you would get chucked. I don't normally get seasick, but I was like a human laboratory for seasick uh, um, uh, medicines. I was like, you know, the person who like at 4 a.m. is like, oh, that looks like an interesting medicine. So I had, you know, like bands on the wrist and the things behind your ear and all this. I was drunk on Dramamine. But he was a very skilled captain, mm. and he eventually led us through the Gulf of Pain, and we did indeed get to Wager Island. Okay, so outside of the captain and the fixer with the questionable boat, you in the past have talked about sort of your favorite kind of reporting is to just hang out and spend time with people. So when you're working on a book like this, when everyone is dead, essentially. You hang out with ghosts. Yeah, okay, you hang out with ghosts, but <laughs> there are, you've got your archivists who are yes. showing you something. Let's talk about the living people who helped you bring the wager to life. Naval historians were wonderfully helpful just mm -hmm. in teaching me how to read this foreign language. It really took me about a year to feel fluent in, in this world, that I kind of mm -hmm. understood the lingo, could read the logbooks, understood the diaries and the language, what they were referring to, that it became more second nature, which you need to do right. if you're going to write about it. Because otherwise, when I would write a sentence, my wife Kira would say, what, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> nobody's going to get that, and nobody understands. So I'd be like... <laughs> so they were very helpful. And mm -hmm. I traveled to a lot of archives uh, to mm -hmm. get the documents. Um, but this one was fairly solitary because it was so long ago. There were some descendants who had records or photographs or even some letters from people. But it was mostly libraries and archives. And then, of course, this kind of wonderful mad trip to Wager Island. Mm -hmm. Which I'm glad you came back from. Thank you. I want to drop in a couple of questions from the audience before we get too far afield because also I'm watching the time and I knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to bump up against time. Someone's asking, please tell us about your process for deciding on what you'll write about, what merits the undertaking. And you've talked about it a little bit in terms of the wager, certainly, but let's talk about the body of work that is David Grant. Yeah, I think that is really the hardest thing. It's a little bit easier when it's a magazine story because mm -hmm. um, you're not going to be spending so many years with it. There is a kind of analytical, rational process that goes along. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the analytical process is you find a story that is something curious or interesting. Sometimes it can derive from just a strange combination of words. You know, once I was reading a little brief. Briefs are great for looking at stories, although they don't exist as many more mm -hmm. because the newspapers, unfortunately, are dying. But, the, you know, I used to read all the metropolitan papers and around different states, and you'd read the brief. I remember reading a brief once that it said, several members of a prison gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, were arrested while in prison. Um, and they were rounded up. I think it said one had been in solitary confinement. I was like, arrested while in prison? And one's in solitary confinement? I just thought that combination of words just was like, that's really weird and interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, and then I, you just start asking yourself questions like, how do you even run a gang in a prison? And if you're in solitary confinement, how do you even communicate? Mm -hmm. What is your, you know, if, you're, if it's about power and riches, what are your riches and power in a prison system? What is your commerce? So that led me down the road to write a story about the most murderous prison gang. Sometimes it can be, you know, even just a, a missing photograph. I, when I, for Killers of the Flower Moon, when I had heard a little bit about 
the serial killings of um, members of the Osage Nation uh, for their oil money um, during the early 20th century and one of the really more monstrous crimes and racial injustices. But it was something I didn't know anything about before someone mentioned to me and I was ignorant of it. I remember going out to the Osage Nation and I visited their museum and there was this photograph on the wall. And at that point I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know, am I gonna write to, I don't really know. And I, there was this great photograph on the wall that was taken from 1924 and it showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. And it looked completely innocent, but I had noticed that there was this portion of the photograph that was missing. And I asked the museum director, who has since become a really good friend of mm -hmm. mine, Catherine Redcorn, why is that panel missing? And, and I've told this story before, but she, she said they had removed that photograph because it contained um, a figure who was so evil. And then she pointed to the missing panel and she said the devil was standing right there. And that really became the beginning of the origins of setting me on my way to write mm -hmm. uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. But I think the analytical part is you need a story and a subject that is fascinating, that, that grips you in some ways. But also I think it's really important that reveals something larger and tells a larger story. You know, there are a lot of crime stories, for example, that are I love to read. They're kind of gothic tales and tabloids. But the only ones I want to tell are gonna be the ones that hopefully illuminate something larger about the human condition or systematic injustices. Those are the ones you wanna find that other layer, that other dimension to the story, I think, if you're gonna tell it. So you kind of go through these analytical process. You also have very practical questions. Mm -hmm. Is there enough material to tell the story? I come across great stories sometimes, like, oh, all those documents are classified, and you do a FOIA and the government comes back and says no. So you're like, all right, that story, I can't do that unless I live another 50 years. And so sometimes there's practical concerns. But I will say that among all those analytical questions, there is also something that is just instinctive. There is something when something just gets in you, you kind of see a good story, and it just kind of grabs you. And when you can't let it go, when you're still thinking about it, and you're almost trying to let it go, and it won't let you go, you go. Yeah, you just described book selling. You just know it when you see it. I really, I, you know it when you see it. You're a phenomenal writer and historian. Do you have any advice for young artists and authors? You know, I, I think the greatest advice is really just to do it. I mean, I think that there are really no grand secrets. I always joke that the difference between a writer and a non-writer is the writer is just willing to spend eight hours staring at their computer, while the non-writer is like, why would I do that? That's nuts. Can you write that for me? <laughs> and then you go sit and spend eight hours. So that's really the difference. Um, but it is, uh, you know, there are these kind of unbelievably gifted writers, and it's just, mm -hmm. you know they have to work and hone their crap, but you're just like, you were born with some gift. You're a prodigy. But for most of us, it is a craft, and it is something that you, it is experiential. You learn the techniques of reporting mm -hmm. and research, you learn how to analyze documents, to cross-analyze documents, and you learn to write and structure by doing. And so I think the, you know, the real secret mm -hmm. is if you re it's not an easy life in so many ways, and it's become in so many ways so much more fraught now um, in terms of the industry and the media industry and the kind of the old past that used to exist are kind of crumbling, but there are still ways to do it. And so I would say if it's something you really want to do, if you're really passionate about it, just do it. But do it means actually doing it and not just talking about it. If you're just telling the same story at a cocktail party, you're not doing it. You've mm -hmm. got to actually sit down and write it. The team that has optioned the wagers, the same team that did Killers of the Flower Moon, which is obviously coming next month, have you seen the film yet? 
Patrick Crane, I'm asking your question, okay? I, whether or not he answers it. Uh, no comment. Okay, fair. <laughs> no, let me say that. I, I won't be so coy. Um, I did see uh, an early cut of the mm -hmm. movie, and um, I was very impressed by what they have mm -hmm. accomplished and achieved. And I was because I know nothing about the movie business. People are always asking me, like, do you know about movies now? I was like, I don't know anything. You know, I always joke that, like, you know, in a movie production, I probably shouldn't tell this joke, but I'll tell it anyways. <laughs> uh, on a movie production, you know, uh, there is, the, like, the captain, you know, the director has a lot of authority. You know, it's like on a ship. Then there are the petty officers. Then there are the able seamen. Then there are the ordinary seamen. And then all the way at the bottom are the little pitiful landlubbers who have to work doing manual labor in the middle of the ship, so they're called the wasters because they're in the waste of the ship, and they work alongside the defecating animals. That's kind of where the author is in a movie production <laughs> hierarchy. Um, so I have been unbelievably blessed. I have been so fortunate. So my goal always with these things is just get this thing into the hands of people who know what they're doing. I'm not mm -hmm. going to tell them, excuse me, Mr. Scorsese, I really don't think that tracking shot works right now. Um, <laughs> So you try to get it in the hands of people who know what they're doing. And what was so great about watching them work on Killers of the Flower Moon was that they share the same fierce commitment to the story that I had. You know, mm -hmm. a, a movie will not be an exact replica of a book, right. and it shouldn't be. It's a completely different medium. When you're a historian or you're writing a story, you have to kind of tell it from the outside because you can't enter people's consciousness. Mm -hmm. So you're an external observer, as close as you get, even with diaries. And yet, if you're making a movie, there are people fully occupying these roles. Mm -hmm. So you tell a story from the inside. I mean, that's what makes film powerful. It's just mm -hmm. a different, but it's a different medium. But they shared that same fierce commitment to getting the story right, and they worked, from everything I could tell, just so closely with members of the Osage Nation mm -hmm. um, to get the story right. And so much of the development of the process happened because of that. It was shot on location. There are Osage actors. The Osage were involved in every level of the production. Mm -hmm. So for me, that you know, just gives me such a level of comfort because any author who tells you they're not afraid of what the outcome might be when they adopt it, they're lying to you. You always have some fear. But I had such comfort working with these folks. And um, so when they, of course, said they wanted to you know, maybe develop an option, the wager, and try to develop it. I was like, can't get better than that. Okay, Lost City of Z, your first book, was also made into a movie. Yeah. And Percy Fawcett, who was the subject of that book, he was a pop culture phenom in yes. the Victorian era. I mean, even Arthur Conan Doyle sort of used him as a model for a novel that he wrote in 1912. And... The sailors and the captain and all of the men who wrote their varying books and tales when they got back from the Gulf and all of their misadventures. They all wrote books. They became bestsellers, off-the-chart bestsellers. And, of course, I had never heard of any of them or any of their books until you wrote The Wager. So that tells you about <clears throat> the legacy of some bestsellers. But there's one book I'm going to ask you, and I'm Aaron, I swear I'm keeping an eye on the time. This is the subtitle of one of the best-selling books. So what's important to understand is that um, this period, and one of the reasons these stories became so famous in their day, was they corresponded with this transformation in the publishing industry. There was greater literacy in Europe. 
printing was cheaper. And so suddenly um, there were these accounts could really be printed and spread and could be read. And sea tales and sea yarns was such a fascination in this period of empire. Those, they kind of became the seeds of early literature, of, of British and European literature in many ways, which is why Defoe, you know, Robinson Crusoe. So in this account, but they had all these accounts had these, you know, this was their version, I guess, of Twitter or of, <laughs> of social media. I don't know. So they would smack on these uh, incredibly long subtitles to try to tantalize readers. And so this is a not a typical subtitle, a faithful narrative. That's the other thing I love. The everyone faithful. <laughs> it's kind of like when a politician tells you, frankly. A faithful narrative of the loss of his majesty's ship, the wager on a desolate island in the latitude 47 south, longitude 8140 west, with the proceedings and conduct of the officers and crew and the hardships they endured in the said island for the space of five months, their bold attempt for liberty in coasting the southern part of the vast region of Patagonia, setting out with upwards of 80 souls in their boats the loss of the cutter, their passage through the Strait of Magellan, an account of the incredible hardships they frequently underwent for want of food of any kind. It actually goes on, dot, dot, dot. At a certain point, you got to end it. I actually wanted, I actually experimented with doing that for this book, <laughs> and I had done some. I did some runs, and I was like, nah, it's never going to work. <laughs> David was going to break the internet if he did that. He was going to break the internet, and instead we get a really excellent, excellent book, The Wager, with a bearable subtitle. Okay? We're not going to break the internet with that subtitle. David Grant, thank you so much That's for joining pleasure. us. Thank it you is all always for good coming. to see you. Thank Sit you. tight for a second. We're going to set up the signing piece. So if you could all just stay in your chairs for a second, we're going to get you set up. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.